Hello, brothers, and welcome again to our study in the book of Genesis. We are in Genesis 39 today, and you may have noticed that I entitled this study, or a time in Genesis 39, I entitled it Coram Deo, which is a Latin phrase. I first saw this phrase, Coram Deo, on the back of a soccer sweatshirt at Covenant College. I played, I attended Covenant College, I played soccer there, and it was years later, I was visiting my brother, and I saw these sweatshirts, and saw on the back, it just said, Coram Deo. Coram Deo is a Latin phrase, which means in the presence of God, or literally before the face of God. In the Vulgate translation of the Bible, uh, Latin Vulgate, uh, they use this phrase in Psalm 56, 13. At the end of Psalm 56, the psalmist writes, that I may walk before God in the light of life. In the Vulgate translation, put Coram Deo, in the face of God or before the face of God. If you've read ahead in Genesis 39, you may have noticed that the word Yahweh, or in our English translations, Lord, with all capital letters, appears eight times. Four times, it says the Lord, or Yahweh, was with Joseph. And you may have noticed that there's a beginning section of Genesis 39, where twice God says, or, the, or, or Moses writes, the Lord was with Joseph. And then it ends with some verses where it says, twice the Lord was with Joseph, starting and ending of this passage. And as I've read this and studied this, I kept having this thought, Coram Deo. I think there's something here for us to learn as men about what it means uh, to to understand that God is with us and to understand how to live in that reality, how to live in the face of God. So as we think about that, let's go ahead and read Genesis 39. I'll read all 23 verses. You can follow along with me. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was, a, was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept, anything, kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. 
but one day when he went into the house to do his work none of the men of the house was there in the house she caught him by the garment saying lie with me but he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house she called to the men of her household and said to them see he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. As soon as he heard that I had lifted my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her, his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, This Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard these words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, uh, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in charge Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the great privilege we have to sit under your word. We would ask that you would teach us. We want you to teach us. So, Father, by your Spirit's power, speak to us, even in this crazy medium of having to do it uh, over uh, online resources, and make your Spirit work wherever we're meeting to study your word. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three things I want us to see here in regards to God being with us and what it means to live in the face of, of God. You see that the, the, the main section of the scripture here in Genesis 39 seems to be this moment of great temptation for Joseph, but bracketed uh, before and after these times when he uh, is enslaved or imprisoned. Um, and in both of those places, it talks about God being with him. But I think we're going to certainly see that God was, was with him. And he was aware of that, even in this great temptation. So what does that mean for us? What can we learn from this? Well, the first thing I want us to see in verses 1 uh, through 6a is that God is with us in our suffering. Can you imagine, just for a moment, the kind of trauma that Joseph would have experienced or, or had experienced? Uh, you remember that uh, before the interlude that we looked at last week with Judah and Tamar and George's teachings on that and the great mercy and grace poured out, even as we understood that Jesus' line came through Perez, uh, Tamar's uh, son. You remember that prior to that, when Barton was teaching, we left Joseph um, in the hands of these traders who were going to Egypt and he was sold to them as a slave. So he is in shackles. And now, can you imagine the trauma you have? You have lost family. You are in slavery. Um, you, you don't know how to contact anyone you know. You no longer know the language. He's in Egypt. He doesn't know the language. And he is there being treated like cattle and being looked over, probably stripped naked. There he is, a 17-year-old boy, 
gone from being the favorite of his father in a very wealthy home, and now he is in Egypt. He doesn't know the language, and he's being treated like cattle. And he's, and he's purchased by Potiphar, the, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. So he goes into uh, to be the slave of this very, very powerful man. Can you imagine also just the anger and the bitterness and the hopelessness that could have prevailed in Joseph? Think about serving God or being in God's family and all of that happening to you, all of that suffering. I know sometimes when we read these first six verses, we imagine that from the time that Joseph arrived in Potiphar's house until the time at which Joseph was really in charge of everything, sometimes I feel like we imagine that it happened you know, in a period of like a few months or a year. Most likely, that's not true. Most likely, they're, they're, this, this was more like years and years, like maybe 10 years. Maybe now it's 10 years later and he's 27 years old, but there was a a time maybe of a decade there where he was going to have to learn the language and he was going to have to figure out what it meant to be a slave and the fact that his family was just completely gone and that his brothers had done this to him. And yet it says, God was with Joseph twice. It says God was with Joseph. And three more times, it talks about God helping Joseph to succeed. So while we don't understand the details that might have gone into Joseph going from someone who was just purchased by Potiphar to now being in charge of his house and how that happened, the text does tell us two things. First thing it tells us is that God was with Joseph in his sufferings. Sometimes I think we imagine that for God to be with us, he he was going to bring us out of our sufferings. And yet we see over and over again in Scripture that it is that it is often in the midst of or through our sufferings that we experience uh, the presence of God uh, most intently, and I, I think that is by design. I think it's certainly by our own sensitivity to to needing the presence of God, to needing Him to be there. But in the midst of this suffering, it's clear God was with him. God had not left him. The other thing I want us to see from the text here in these first six verses is that clearly Joseph got to work. I mean, Joseph got busy. (laughs) Uh, He didn't sit there and, and wallow in bitterness or wallow in anger or wallow in hopelessness. Instead, he was he was at work. He was busy. How do we know this? Look what it says in verse three. It says, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that Joseph did to succeed in his hands. So what's going on there? Joseph got busy. He looked at his situation and and he started living as someone who understood Coram Deo, living in the face of God. He responded as someone living in the face of God. This is where I am. This is my suffering. I'm a slave. I'm in Potiphar's house. I need to be the best slave I can be. I need to be the most faithful, reliable worker I can possibly be. This is a terrible situation, but it's a situation God has me. And God is with me. And I need to roll up my sleeves. And I need to do what God wants me to do in this place. He responded as someone living in the face of God. 
And then we go on in verses uh, 6b through 18. We see that God is with us in temptation. Like you, I've, I've read this passage many times. I've thought about it before, even as we as men can, can really struggle with sexual temptation and look to God's word for direction and how to battle that temptation. And while I've read this many times, brothers, as I've looked at it these last few days, honestly, I've been blown away by the immensity of this temptation. <laughs> as I've really thought about the details and imagined what it was like, it, it, what an overwhelming battle this was. Think about what we see here in these passages. It says, first of all, that it was the master's wife. So it wasn't even just like some other slave girl. No, this is this is someone who had power over him in the house. It certainly was an opportunity maybe for advancement, was an opportunity to gain even more power in the house if he had responded to Potiphar's wife and her desire to have sex with him. But certainly there was a power dynamic there that was really intense. And then she didn't, <laughs> she wasn't vague in what she wanted to do. She made it clear, I want you to have sex with me. She, she, there wasn't any hinting at this. She just came out and she said it. And not only that, but even after he refuses, you know, she says, lie with me. And he goes on to explain why he can't. And we'll get to that in a second. But even uh, after he refuses her and refuses her pretty strongly, it says in verse 10 that day after day after day, she kept asking him to have sex with her. She didn't give up the persistence of this. And if that immensity of temptation wasn't enough, here we see in verses 11 through 18, this, this moment where it's heightened, where he goes in the house and no one else in the, is in the house. No one else would know. He could get away with it. And she grabs him. And it says she grabbed, took to hold by his garment and this garment isn't just like something that was kind of draped over his shoulder. This is like his shirt. So in order to get out of the shirt, she was going to have to really grab him. There was a wrestling going on. And you can imagine that if she was intent on having sex with him, that, that she wasn't just grabbing him like a hug. That she was trying to use her lustful, seducing powers to get him to have sex with her. Can you imagine? Can you imagine as a possibly 27-year-old man in this context being faced with that kind of temptation? And even as I thought about the immensity of the temptation, I'm also astounded, equally astounded, by Joseph's response, by his resistance. How in the world did he do that? I mean, we struggle, don't we, men, with with smaller issues, it seems like, or it seems like in the beginning of internet pornography and all of that, we'll get to that, how dangerous that can be for us. And yet this situation was overwhelming. And yet Joseph's response is astounding as well. Some of you followed along in um, the commentary in Genesis by Derek Kidner, and both Derek Kidner and Alice, uh, excuse me, D.A. Carson, bring out four things that we see in regards to Joseph's response here. 
And I think they're very helpful for us in understanding both the text here and understanding our own resistance to temptation and the tools that the Lord has for us, his grace to be able to overcome temptation. First of all, you can see in Joseph's response there in verse 8 to uh, to end in, in the whole thing, you can see Joseph's response that, that he had a cultivated character, or as D.A. Carson says, he had a worldview. Because when you look at the circumstances that Joseph used to explain to Potiphar's wife why he can't sleep with her, you could also imagine that those same exact circumstances could have been used as excuses as to why he should have slept with her. And there's many men and women throughout the ages who have done that. I mean, you look at what he said there, and he said, first of all, behold, because my master has no concern about anything in the house. In other words, I'm in charge of everything. This guy, he doesn't even take care of his wife. And nobody's going to know. I can send everybody out of the house. I can handle this. Plus, you know what? He probably should have put me in charge of his wife, too, because he's not caring for her, clearly. And then it goes on. Some of the other examples he said. He says, the master's not greater than I am, and he hasn't kept back anything from me except for you. And maybe it would have been easy for Joseph to say, you know what? I do all the work around here. This is, I probably deserve this. And you know what? She clearly sees me as head of the household. I mean, there have been so many things, but but why didn't Joseph respond like that? Why didn't he take those neutral circumstances and use them to justify his his attempt uh, his sin? Well, because he had a cultivated character. We see that even as he was growing up, or 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 the years that he spent in Potiphar's house, uh, he was someone who could be trusted. He was someone who was faithful. He was someone who was going to do the right thing when no one was looking. And he had built a life like that. He had developed a worldview that that's the way he should act. And so when this great temptation come, came, he was ready. Because in the small things, in the small things, brothers, he had made those decisions about being faithful, about being obedient, about being trustworthy, about being pure. In the small things. So when the big thing came, he already had cultivated that kind of uh, a character, a worldview, a way to look at things, a way to look at circumstances. Second thing we see there in his fight of temptation is that Joseph wasn't afraid to call a sin a sin, to call it the evil that it was. Look what it says there in uh, in verse Nine, he says to Potiphar's wife, how can I do this great wickedness? How can I do this wicked thing? He just calls it what it is, calls sin, sin. I think one of our sins is we often call sin a mistake, a slip up, something small, uh, uh, a a lapsing character. We have all these words, you know, a temptation I fell into. Instead of saying, no, this is a great wickedness. This, this going to this website is a great wickedness. 
Watching the show is a great wickedness. Lingering too long in my uh, um, view of another woman that's not my wife is a great wickedness. These things are realities for us. And I need to, I need to own up to these things. I cannot, I cannot treat them as simply mistakes or slip-ups. That would not be right. The third thing that we see here in this passage that uh, Joseph does in order to resist temptation, and right there again in verse 9, it says uh, this great wickedness and sin against God. So not only does he call the sin wickedness, but he also goes further and says this is a sin against God. Immediately it makes me think of Psalm 51. David writes Psalm 51 after he's um, uh, confronted by the prophet Nathan in regards to the sin that he's committed. And in that sin of uh, sleeping with Bathsheba and and getting um, her pregnant and then having her husband murdered, uh, he realizes, wait, this isn't just some kind of relational sin. No, this is a sin against God. He says that when Nathan confronts him, he says, I've sinned against the Lord. And then in Psalm 51, he goes on to say, "Um, against you and you only have I sinned. And brothers, this is key. This is absolutely key that we understand that any sin we commit is not just a sin against another person. And it is. But ultimately, it's a great wickedness against God. And if we could understand that any temptation that faces us, if we were to fall into it, would be a great wickedness against God. Oh, that would help us battle temptation. Satan tries to get us to see it a different way, to see it as a mistake, a slip up, see it as against sin against this person, not a sin against God. We need to see it like Joseph sees it here. The final thing that we see in these verses before us in regards to the, the temptation that Joseph was facing and how he respond to it, responded to it was really there in verses 11 through 18. I love the way that D.A. Carson puts it, that Joseph valued purity over his prospects. He knew what Potiphar's wife was going to do with that garment. He knew that by bolting out of the house and leaving his garment there, that yeah, he was going to save his purity, but it was probably going to cost him something. He knew this was not going to end very well. And yet his purity was more important to him than the prospects for the future. Think of the importance of those those four things, brothers, and how important they could be for us in our lives. That we would be men who would who would cultivate our character in the small things. So that when the big things come along, we're not using the circumstances to make excuses for our sin. But instead, we see things the right way and we respond to temptation the right way because we've cultivated our character in the small things. How important it is for us to to call a sin a sin, to say this is great wickedness. And to not toy around with things and, and use words like slip-ups and mistakes and lapse in character. How important it is for us to understand that it's a sin against God. That any sin is a sin against God. Sure, it's an offense against another human being, but it's not just 
is not just relational. It's actually cosmic with our creator. And lastly, that we would value our purity more than we would value our prospects. Maybe that's the hardest one because following the Lord in obedience and resisting temptation may cost us things. may cost us things that maybe seem unfair. But you know, God's word tells us and makes it clear that we need to do what Joseph did when it comes to sexual sin. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, it says, flee sexual temptation. And over and over again in scripture, it says that. Just get out of there. Don't fight sexual temptation. Just leave. Flee it. And we need to be men who flee sexual temptation. Sexual sin is very powerful, and it's absolutely devastating. And it usually begins with very small things. We notice in this passage that Joseph did his best to not even be around her. He tried to make it so that his work and his daily responsibilities didn't put him in contact with Potiphar's wife at all. And we need to make sure in our relationships with other women who are not our wives, our relationships with TV, our relationships with the computer, our phones, that we are not putting ourselves anywhere near sexual temptation. We need to flee. We just need to get out of there. We need to be like Joseph and respond to, to temptation as, as men who are living in the face of God, who are living in the presence of God. Finally, I want us to see in verses 19 through 23, the end of, of the passage, I want us to see that God is with us in injustice. Imagine how this felt to Joseph. He had been faithful there in Potiphar's house. He had learned the language. He had, he had been a faithful servant. He had, had gone ahead and um, been trustworthy to the point when he wouldn't even sleep with his master's wife, though she wanted him to. He had fled. He had done everything he possibly could to, to, to be righteous, to, to do the right thing. And now he's back in prison. And it appears that even Potiphar doesn't quite believe his wife. Because if he had believed his wife about what Joseph had done, Joseph would have been executed. The fact that he wasn't executed and put in prison suggests that Potiphar wasn't quite sure his wife was telling him the truth. Even think about how that felt. Sure, he was great to be alive, but you're thinking, wow, my master probably believed me, but I'm still in prison? Like, I'm, I've done everything right? Even the people around me know this is an injustice, and yet here I am. This past Sunday, I was preaching Sunday morning. Some of you heard the sermon, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Remember what it said in verse 10? It said, Jesus said, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. I said how hard that is for us, how hard it is for us to be persecuted when we're trying to do the right thing, to face injustice when it's not fair. We've been the good ones. And again, Joseph could have responded with anger. He could have responded with bitterness, with hopelessness. Here he was back in prison again, back at the bottom. What was the point of continuing on? Why, why, would, I keep, why would I keep doing the right thing? Look what it says. I love this, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. 
Every time you see the word steadfast love, that is the word hesed, the Hebrew word hesed, um, covenant love, God's special, particular covenant love for his people. It says that, that the Lord, Yahweh, in the midst of his injustice, in, the, in it, not taking him out of it, but in the midst of it, was with him and showed him his steadfast love. And then goes on and gives him favor. And again, the text, <coughs> excuse me, shows us two things. Clearly, it shows us that God was with Joseph in the prison, right there, in the midst of his injustice. And not only that, the text shows us that Joseph got busy again. Instead of wallowing in hopelessness and despair and anger, this is what God had for him. This is where he was. God was with him, and he got busy again. How do we know he got busy? Because we see the response as God brought favor to Joseph. Joseph was working hard because it says in, uh, in verse 22, whatever was done there, he, that's Joseph, was the one who did it. So he was working hard. He's a faithful servant, trustworthy, work ethic. He was just going to be God's man in, the play, in that place. So even amidst injustice, Joseph did not stop responding as one living in the face of God, in the presence of God. You know, in Matthew, uh, the uh, writer of Matthew's gospel, when he opens up his gospel and speaks of the coming of Jesus, he says, they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then Matthew closes his gospel with Jesus saying, I am with you always to the very end of the age. What Joseph knew there in Potiphar's house, in the palace prison, in that times of injustice, in the times of great temptation, in the times of suffering. Brothers, if you put your faith in Christ, you know that too. Because Jesus has come, and he doesn't just dwell in a presence around us. He dwells as his presence in us. Emmanuel, God with us. Christ saying, I'm going to be with you always, no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through. And so today and every day, God is with us, and we get the great privilege of living in the presence of God, of living each moment in the face of God. Coram Deo. Let's pray. Father, seal these words to our hearts. Teach us more and more the joys, the mercy, the grace that we experience as we live in the presence of God, knowing that you are with us and that you promise to be with us always and everywhere. Thank you, Father for this steadfast love that you have shown us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brothers.